What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers, episode 175. That number just keeps getting bigger and it just keeps getting more ridiculous. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, alongside the man who will deliver us not only pizza, but from evil, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy, and any rumours to the effect that I am uh, moonlighting as an Uber pizza delivery person uh, are only partially accurate. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I am involved in that transaction somewhere. <laughs> it's been a week. We've got a heck of a show for you this week. I uh, I made a choice last week of a chain movie that um, yeah, you did. You know, <clears throat> may or may not have paid off um, in space <laughs> when I had to actually uh, go go um, go through and watch the thing this week. So yep. that's something to look forward to. Uh, it actually inspired me to make a meme out of the, uh, the office space baseball bat printer scene. Um, that's how much it's how much it inspired me. This film, and week. unfortunately for anyone playing along at home, that. That was not an indication of where we're going next with it, but we are going somewhere that we don't normally go. With the could we movie. go to Office Space from the Love Actually? I don't know that one could. I, I highly doubt it, but we're going somewhere a little different to where we normally go with Jane Movie this 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 next week. So, wow, well, that's a- probably a good thing, and that's what I was trying for this week. And, mm. and you know, maybe I succeeded, maybe I didn't. <laughs> Because um, there were definitely know, plenty of exits from a movie such as Love Actually. Indeed. And then for, just to confirm it, the IMDb credit search says there is no connection between Love Actually and Office Space. I'm sorry. Oh, it's a yeah, obviously there, Unfortunately, there is a connection between one of our other films in Office Space, seeing it uh, Stephen Root starts in Two Leslie, which we'll also be discussing tonight. Root, but yes. that's not how it works. It's got to be the chain movie. No, but yes, as Travis just mentioned there, we will be talking about another one of the Oscar Oscar contenders um, to Leslie. And we're going back to 2001 to watch a, a much-loved cult indie classic now, I think is its official taglines, Donnie Darko, starring a very early on his um, slow but somewhat obvious rise to being a very successful leading man in Hollywood, Mr. Jake Gyllenhaal, as well as the big introduction for Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh, it's also the first ever film role of Seth Rogen. It is the first role. Yes. His first line in cinema was, I like your boobs. But, uh, you know, let's say. And to coincide with that, he did uh, the trailer for the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles thing, and it came out the eternal teenager Seth Rogen. He is. Oh, I, always, I had not known. He was born seen that. fully formed, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, should we? Should we? Should we crack on? There's a bit. To yeah, do. let's we, crack on. We do try let's to keep about... these briefer these days. Yes. Um, Aaron Hart chain movie. Adult. Chain movie. <laughs> Love actually, Travis. You chose this movie. Introduce it for us, please. Follow the lives of eight very different couples in dealing with their love lives in various loosely interrelated styles, all set during a frantic month before Christmas in London, England. Written and directed by the uh, infamous or famous Richard Curtis, uh, responsible for things like Mr. Bean and Blackadder early on in his career. Later on, things like Four Weddings and a Funeral, Love Actually, uh, more recently, Yesterday, uh, Mamma Mia films. The guy... 
is prolific. And apparently he's a Kiwi. I did not know that. So I thought he was Monster. British. Um, he, he, maybe he's just born now. It's a huge cast, including mm-hmm. Hugh Grant, Kieran Knightley, Laura Linney, Liam Neeson, Bill Nye, Colin Firth, Emma Thompson, uh, Martin Freeman, Chiwetel Ejiofor, uh, Andrew Lincoln, uh, and I'm probably forgetting some people in there as well mm-hmm. who are quite well known. Oh, sorry, um, Shannon Elizabeth uh, is in this movie <laughs> as well as uh, uh, as one of the hot American girls. Denise, uh, uh, Denise Richards. Denise Richards is in there as well. Um, there are a lot of unique faces that sort of kept popping up, and I'm like, uh, I know that Alan face, Richman, of course, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit. There's a few points in there, and I'm like, oh, Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> I forgot about Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. Uh, Michael Parsons, Rowan Atkinson with the best cameo in the film. January Which Jones. Stole from me. Uh, sorry. I have never seen this film before. Um, it is a beloved classic. Now, I think it's fair to say, despite what your will may or may not just about to hit. Um, it, people, when I posted about it on my Facebook, it said they'd gone and seen it at Christmas time with a live mm-hmm. orchestra. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that translates to, say, any of our friends who are listening in the United States. I yeah. Think it's big here. I know it's pretty big in the UK. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure if that's translated um, across the pond to the US. But I was curious about this on one level to go, it's a, it's a rom-com. We almost never do rom-coms, especially mm-hmm. ones that don't deal with plucky young advertising executives. Um, plucky young advertising executives, you say? It's almost there like was an advertising executive. executive um, advertising executive. Well, it's a different brand. of, um, mm-hmm. But also, in fairness, i got to give um, credit where it's due. Michelle recommended this to mm-hmm. me. Uh, if nothing else. Why does she, she hurt, hate- like hurting me? She hates this film, and she wanted someone to hate it with her, I think is what happened. <laughs> Um, and so it's a dangerous game to play because I could have liked this film and then I could have gone in, you know, like, well, I would have, you know, you, there would have been sort of, some conversations, my friend. There it's like when you introduce someone to a film you really, really love and they go, uh, actually, it was pretty mm-hmm. crappy. And, mm-hmm. you know, then you're like, I guess a little bit awkward. You're like, well, this is one of my favorites. And, you know, so, um, that is why we landed in this film because Michelle wanted someone to hate it with her. And I wanted something a bit different. We had had three or four very sort of highfalutin, heavy, serious films, or at least uh, we've been discussing over recent weeks of films like um, Yeah. Never we Let still Go. have the highfalutin, heavy film coming up later, ladies and gentlemen. Don't worry. Yes. <laughs> there, are, <laughs> there are many of those. I thought maybe something a bit light and fluffier. Yeah. This film, though, is two hours and nine minutes long. I mm-hmm. 15, apparently. Sorry, my bad. And it is probably half an hour too long. It, I, I mean, rom-com really shouldn't push past an hour 45. An hour 30 would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a gigantic pile of shit. This yep. is not just a shit movie in the sense of like, oh, of course, Travis, you're not going to like it. It's about Christmas. You don't like Christmas. That's mm-hmm. fair. I don't like Christmas. Mm-hmm. And it is cheesy. Most rom-coms are cheesy, you know. They're, yeah. You know, they're dealing with, you know, mm. preposterous situations. And, you know, I, I think I'm fine with a cheesy rom-com, you know. I think of a film like When Harry Met Sally, it has its charms, mm. you know. 
uh, or, you know, sleeps in Seattle. It's kind of stupid and cheesy, but yeah, it does what it does. I think objectively, aside from the cheesy subject matter here, it's just not a good film. It's it's a bad movie, um, kind of written and directed in such a way as similar in a similar kind of fashion to how I feel Mission Impossible Three was done, where it's almost that movie is almost three episodes put together because J.J. Abrams still. You know, he wasn't entirely sure how to actually film a feature film at that point. He had a lot of success in TV and he knew knew how to tell an interesting story, but it felt very disparate. This was Richard Curtis, I think, his directorial debut. I think you're right. He does not direct. If you look at his, his IMDb page, he has 70 writing credits. He has mm. five directing credits. And this is, as you note, the first one. There are only two other features he's directed subsequently. Mm. And uh, this maybe it could have been better reeks, with a better director. Yeah, it kind of reeks of that because it is using a bit of that trope of, ah, oh, add together loads of little stories that you can just jump to the interesting part every time rather than have to f- do a fully formed thing. And then you just have loose connective tissue uh, to bring it all together at the end. And so many right. of these don't need to be in there. Like, you're 100% um, right. It, it feels like Richard Curtis had eight or nine different sort of beginnings of ideas mm. for stuff he could do. And yeah. I don't know where, I, mean, I don't know the guy, obviously, but, um, you know, I, don't, I, I get a feeling that rather than actually working on developing one or two of those stories to fruition, um, mm. he just thought, like you said, just smoosh them all into the one thing. And he's sort of, at the, uh, once he's sort of, rather than actually writing them as connected stories from the start, mm-hmm. he's then come in and deliberately added the connections later on to get make it sort of make sense in terms of making an entire feature film about these stories. Because yeah. you made eight separate couple stories in a feature film without any sort of connective tissue. Yeah. That wouldn't really work in a feature. I mean, the, because it just feels artificial the way it's added on these connections mm-hmm. are added because they are seem almost afterthoughts. Yeah. So the, the couples in question, let me see if I can remember them. Uh, <laughs> because there were a lot of them. Um, we have uh, Andrew Lincoln, uh, sorry, not to tell, Chibatel, Edge of Four, and Kira Knightley. So that is Juliet and Peter getting married yep. at the start of a film. Note here the ch- I was cringing from the first 10 minutes of the film because during their wedding, to their much to their surprise, uh, Andrew Lincoln's Mark, who is Peter's best man or best friend, I don't know if he's actually the best man, um, has organized a mm-hmm. choir to sing All You Need Is Love at the Beatles song. To and you know, they they there's curtains in the church that drop away and their yeah. choir's just there, and I'm like, oh fuck, that's but huge. it gets worse. Worse. And this is, in fairness to Richard Curtis and the, and the people behind this film, they are not lying about what you're getting. This is a very good indicator of what's coming down the line. So if you oh, don't yeah. like this, you're probably not going to have a very good time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like it. Interestingly, this is an F, a leftover idea, apparently, from Four Weddings and the Funeral. Um, so stay that left. is a hint to me that I think a lot of this film are leftover ideas that didn't quite fit anywhere else in the stuff mm-hmm. he was writing. So yeah. he just tossed them into the mix here. And like I said, just sort of, you know, tied it all together roughly. 
Um, mm-hmm. So we have that. That turns out that Mark is in love with Juliet. So that's that sort of couple sort of story there. We have mm-hmm. Hugh Grant, who is the Prime Minister of England, which please, as if they would ever elect anybody that charming or handsome as Prime Minister. Have you seen who came before him? Fuck off, right? You know, <laughs> no way. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty sure that? that was intentionally done to make a joke of the, you know, the the, the British political system. But it's still just like, oh, yeah. I would be curious to see the science behind it. How many people got diabetes within the first 20 minutes of this movie? Because it is so saccharine sweet. My God. Hugh Grant is the newly elected prime minister, I think is the insinuation here. There's some cheap jabs at um, Tony Blair, who I think was PM mm. at the time or had just been PM. Sitting, yeah. Um, and he is newly elected. He is a single PM. Now, here's the, one of my first thoughts is, if you're going to pick one of the ideas to run with, this could have been a good one because I think there's some legs with this one, not so yeah. much with the others. Um, no. We have Laura Linney, who is, I think, our put-upon advertising executive. She, she works. Is, yeah. With, yes, she uh, is. She, she is the anti-Blucky. <laughs> she is the anti-Meg Ryan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she is works for the same. She works for Alan Rickman, basically. Alan Rickman is mm-hmm. the boss at the company. Alan Rickman is married to Emma Thompson, but he's having an affair with his secretary, whose name escapes me. Uh, Heike Makach, who plays Mia. Meg. Yeah, uh, Mia. Yeah, Mia. Um, we have Martin Freeman and who plays John and mm-hmm. Joanna Page, who plays just Judy, apparently, or Judy, who are stand-ins for a porn film. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that they put that much effort into blocking shots during pornography. Um, but apparently mm-hmm. they do. Um, yep. and that's where they meet. They meet getting naked with each other and simulating mm-hmm. a sex scene uh, in and talking about the weather. Um have I forgotten anybody here? Oh, of course, the love interest of the Prime Minister is played by someone's, is this, uh, I think of it, the actress's name, but she's not, what, Martin McCutcheon, he plays Natalie. Yes. Uh, sorry, and, and most importantly, <laughs> sorry, most importantly, Liam Neeson and his son, played mm-hmm. by uh, Liam Neeson uh, and his son played by Thomas Brody Sangster as Sam. I'm not even going to bother looking at this character's name because it doesn't matter because he's just Liam Neeson. And every time mm. he picks up a phone in the film, Dang I'm kind it. of like, I don't know no, who you are, but I'm going to find you and I am going to date you. Um, <laughs> and his wife is deceased. He's, or he's a widower and yes. he's now a single father of Sam. Sam is in love with a girl at his school um, who sort of becomes a something later. Oh, of course, I'm forgetting more. Colin Firth is in here as well. He plays... And yep. author, uh, who goes to uh, who goes to Portugal to write his book. Yep. Name is Jamie. Him, so he plays Jamie. He falls in love with his maid, mm-hmm. um, who uh, I'd have to go digging around and trying to remember the actress's name, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, <laughs> he's not famous. So, uh, Lucy Moniz, who plays Aurelia. Yeah. Uh, and there you can tell already there's so many characters, there's so much going on and in this there, story. Then there's the other one as well, which is the failed romance of Colin Frissel, played by Chris Marshall, who is your 
kind British of quintessential lad. young young London lad who just wants to have sex. And even in, even in a movie, this this saccharine sweet and hodgepodge that that little story it it seems like the most american part of it just because it does it almost feels like a weird kind of like some the when he flies off to america the boys in the Euro Trip movie are, f- are flying the opposite way and they just pass just in the night. It's just like they pass into it. There's like it's like a wormhole over the Atlantic and he t- he leaves in a in a British uh love comedy and cu- turns up in a college a sex romp film. Yeah. Uh he felt like from something like American Pie or Road Trip or yeah. something like that. And you're like, yeah. And maybe this, again, this one feels like at the beginnings of an idea that maybe the writer had to 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 the right a yep. version of that film with a British protagonist going, you know, but couldn't finish it, didn't want to finish it, slots yep. it into this one instead. Yep. Um, things I liked about this film. I, I'm sorry. I, I am forgetting things. We're forgetting things. There's so much going on. Yep. Bill Nye. Bill Nye yep. plays Billy Mack, who is an aging pop star who has released a cover of Love Is All Around called Christmas Is All Around yep. uh, and is uh, competing for the English number one spot on the charts for Christmas. For those who aren't aware, being the, the Christmas number one in the UK is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I might expect George to tell us why, but we don't care. I don't do music. All I remember, the only <laughs> thing I really remember is um, the Donnie Darko version of Mad World ended up being Christmas number one. And I was very happy um, with that because it meant I could listen, I, I could authenticate and justify listening to the Donnie Darko soundtrack at work saying it's Christmas music. I think in 2008 or 2009, Raging Machine had the Christmas number one with Killing in the Name of after an, an internet campaign to not give it to the latest winner of a pop star TV show. Um, <laughs> and I recall they actually turned up and played on the BBC or somewhere and they told Probably. them not to swear. And that really worked. Not. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so things I liked about this film. I liked Bill Nye's character. I think so Bill, you talked about it a little last week. I think this might have been the film that kind of propelled him into the public consciousness, along with things like Shaun of the Dead. Um, mm-hmm. And he's fantastic in this film. He's actually mm-hmm. a lot of fun. He's got a lot of energy. He's very, mm-hmm. some of the funnier bits of the film include him. He's very entertaining and engaging. And charismatic, mm-hmm. and I liked him. Yes. I think Hugh Grant is good in this film. Hugh Grant is just it's just prime Hugh Grant territory. This is this is yeah. where he eats his shit for breakfast, man. Yeah. Um, and he it's a, and I sort of said earlier, if you had to if I had to improve this film, I would cut out a lot of the stories. And maybe if you had one or two of these stories and you know you kept those, and you know, his would be one of the ones I think there's some there's some legs to it. A, 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 can you imagine like a, an eligible bachelor being elected prime minister of the UK? Yeah. I mean, there was that movie with Michael Douglas, the American president where he plays, you know, a single, you know, um, president and, you know, yeah. how do you date? Do you go on Tinder? I mean, yeah, you know, my daytime job's quite demanding, but you know, um, <laughs> uh, I think that was still look at my LinkedIn profile. It could have been interesting, you know, like um, that, that, that he, it's because there's so much going on. None of these stories that actually work have any room to breathe. 
Um, and I think uh, I, I think Martin Freeman and Judy's as John John and Judy's story is the porn set blockers was amusing and interesting mm. and different. Um, and you know that these two are simulating oral sex and talking about the, the traffic on the way to work and stuff like that. That was yeah. interesting and funny. And I think Martin Freeman yeah. that's a dry comedy works well for him and i think that's mm. the, the end of the list of things that worked well for me the yeah. rest of it felt it was just oh sorry one more maybe i heard rowan atkinson his two cameos in this film were outstanding and you see instantly he's on the screen he does the comedy so much better than everybody else in this film you're like fuck man he's putting on a master class and he's doing it in five minutes he stole that whole presentation thing from me really Genuinely, I was working in a chocolate shop in London, um, Charbonello Walker, and he came in and he bought some. And I said, "Oh, would you like that gift wrapped?" He said, "Oh, yes, that'd be that'd be good, thank you." And I said, "Lovely." And I started doing all the gift wrapping. He went, "Wow, that's going on for a while." So like, ah, it'll be done before you know it. And then this came out, and then I was like, "Wait, that's me! <laughs> Stop it!" <laughs> Well, um, there you go. There's a connection to this film. See, now we know why you don't like it. Um, <laughs> he stole my um, moment, man. But it is funny, right? It's one of a few moments yes. in the film where it actually yes. works. Um, yeah, the, 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 the way that he just plays that character and the, the way that Alan Rickman just Alan Rickman's it. Brilliant little scene. And even as a cameo at the end, which kind of worked okay. Um, so yeah. those are the things I liked about this film. Was there yeah. anything you liked about this film that I haven't mentioned, or did you like? To, or did, you, did you disagree with those things? Or no, I don't disagree with any of those things that you liked. Um, I think the 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 immeasurable talent of Alan Rickman is vastly wasted in this in a move in a character and. I don't really want to call it story because it's more like a flick book. Um, he's he's so much better than this. So is Emma Thompson and their their relationship. And every single one of the stories has got interesting elements to it. None of the actors are doing bad jobs with what they're given. We're just not given any time to actually kind of go. Oh, no, no one's bad in this film. I think yeah. though, I think Malin Rickman is outrageously miscast in this film. He mm -hmm. has no business doing rom-coms, in my opinion. Uh, maybe people can, can can disagree, but um, I just expect him to be, you know, uh, you know, and call off Christmas, you know, or something. And you know, yeah. he's he's a villain. He's a villainous actor, and I think that's what he does best. Or he does very droll, dry comedy fairly well. I yeah. liked him in Delta, um, but this sort of schmaltzy crap, he didn't look comfortable to me. No, it, and and the the character is just sort of like okay. So every single step of the way, he he knows that he's being a shit, and yet by the end, when he says, "I've I've been such a fool," it's like, yes, you were aware of that. Why, why am I supposed to empathize with you at all? Just make him a fucking asshole, a horrible, horrible individual. Let Alan Rickman chew that damn scenery in that role, and we fully empathize with Emma Thompson's character instead. Don't try and make him out to be this blissfully ignorant 
fool because he's, he's almost not. he's almost like he's almost played off as like his harmless, charming, you know, hapless, you know, well-intentioned yeah. guy. Ninety way ninety percent of the film until um, we find it. Well, it's insinuated he's cheating, but they yeah. don't even really nail that. You know, like apparently, according to the trivia on IMDb, there's been an active debate within people who like this film about whether he really did cheat on Emma Thompson or not. And apparently, one of the writers come out and said, "Yes, he did." Um, as opposed to sort of an emotional affair or inappropriate, mm. you know, relation, inappropriately close relationship with his secretary. Or, um, he actually was a sexual affair between the two of them. Like, mm. You kind of needed to show us that, I think, you know. I think yeah, there, there's certain information that you do need to actually deliver to the, you know, to, to your audience to actually tell the story. Um, I think... You're right. There. I think Alan Rickman, as, as you're right, is, is was an immense talent, and, and it just mm. does not. It doesn't work here. The other one no. that doesn't work for me, I and mean, I hinted at it earlier, was Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson, yet again, he can do a lot of things. He's a fantastic actor. I don't see him as a rom-com guy. Like again, I mean, mm. maybe it's just the fact we've been filtered now for the next twenty years of his career, which has been a lot of action, which was not, probably not what we expected in two thousand and three. You know, the, the Taken yeah. character, you know, but. I've always seen when the first person I think of is Oscar Schindler. Yeah. Um, but no, not a rom-com guy. I mean, it just didn't, again, he didn't seem comfortable for material. It didn't work for me. It just seemed mm. weird seeing him there. It'd be like seeing Schwartz, you know, I don't know, I'd say Schwarzenegger doing comedy, but then again, he did do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it just seemed really, really out of place. Um, yeah. And the kid, he his kid was unbearably annoying and didn't talk like a kid and that's one of the that's a problem of the film as well like he couldn't he's been written like an a kid talks like an adult but he's like eight yeah there's there's a very big difference between um uh, delivering a a child character who is mature for their age and sort of like cognitively aware of their surroundings versus an adult delivering adult lines through a child puppet it's a what, very, what kind of very... eight-year-old says, oh, uh, why would you be happy for me? Love, even the, the torture of love and stuff like that. I'm like, no kid in the world talks like that. Um, yeah. And and it can really pulls me out of the film completely when I see, I mean, someone talking uh, like they're not a real person. Like it's just, it's, 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 it's almost just... like he's trying to speak like a modern variation of the lamentations of Romeo. Or something like that. Whereas, you know, in the in the play, Romeo is supposed to be this really young guy, and he's like saying about the woes of dating and romance and all of this stuff. It's like, okay, it was a very different world back then. And Richard Curtis, you are not Shakespeare. Sorry, he's not. Um, I think perhaps the greatest failing of a film for me, or a part of a film, works least well for me, uh, a twofold. Uh, the love triangle with Kira Knightley, Jared Teller, for and Andrew Lincoln. It's a fucking mess. Yep. Um, like, uh, so essentially, uh, Andrew, uh, Juliet thinks Mark doesn't like her. She mm-hmm. he turns up at his house one day to see see if she can get the video footage he shot of their wedding, only to find that he shot, the wedding footage he shot was entirely of her and her face. Mm. And she slowly comes around and goes, oh, Mark's actually in love with her. Mm. Uh, and he turns up at her doorstep one night, unannounced, mind you, with the, the famous scene now 
that I'm, mm-hmm. I even I was familiar with, with him with the uh, the cardboard signs, you know, to yep. me you were perfect, and um, which is I guess inspired by you know the famous Bob Dylan film clip, um, yeah. and she follows him out and then kisses him in the street, and then he walks away going that's enough or something like that, yeah. Um, and then it's just that's just it. Like they just continue on like before. Like he's yeah. best. He's he's you know in love with his best friend's wife, and they just they've, they've basically you know they've, they've they've done something pretty untoward together. And one might consider kissing your uh, husband's best friend uh, cheating. Um, and they just don't mention it ever again. They don't do anything about it. You're like, can you imagine how fucking awkward that would be for the rest of your goddamn life? Is a yeah. You two both know how, how you feel about each other and you've got to hang out together and you can't do anything about it. At the same time, is that guilt of knowing that you've essentially, she's cheated on her husband and he's cut his best man's grass, his best friend's mm-hmm. grass. Like, it's just like, it's really, really, really weird that somehow yeah. this is, this is, I'm supposed to think this is romantic. Yeah. That it's fucked up is what it is. It's fucked up. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's, it's a complete mess on so many levels and Yes, this was at a point where Britain in particular, before Kira Knightley really rose to superstardom and things like that, she was the the hot young new face and Bend It Like Beckham had come out and she was a big success in that one. And I think Pride and Prejudice might have just come out just before this or just after and she got Oscar nomination for that. She's a... Empirically, Pirates of the Caribbean came out that year. Ah, yeah. So she's an empirically attractive person, and she's got an unusual smile. Noted. Um, Andrew Lincoln. This was before he became so synonymous with The Walking Dead, and it's like, okay, you're you're getting kind of hot young British talent in there, okay. Why are you giving them this? Why are it's you also giving them this? See, they get very little time or space to work in. Like, yeah. like this is a very small part of a film. I was very surprised because, like, I was familiar with the famous scene, like I said, for the, mm. the, the cardboard signs. And I'm like, oh, this must be a central plot point or a big part of a film that these these characters in love, mm. but. It's a very small part of the film. I would say yeah. potentially the smallest part of the film, other than you mentioned Chris Marshall. I think his name is the... Um, uh, yeah, the, Colin. And he's yeah. got a big... No. <laughs> and it's... Other than him and his pathetic little subplot, they don't get much time to work in. Yeah. Um, and you're like, ah, okay, that's super weird. For I guess you're right. They all weren't. Andrew Lincoln was not a famous person then, and Kieran Knight, it was young and up and coming, and Chiwetel Ejiofor was probably the very start of his career as well. Of course, he's gone on to be nominated for Oscars and stuff mm-hmm. as well. So maybe yeah. it's just through my my twenty twenty three eyes, where all three of those people are, are reasonably big stars, to see them given so little space, yeah, to work in. But the story just it's just weird how little space is given, and I kind of wonder why you left it in there because I don't mm. think it adds anything to the rest of the film. Yeah, I, aside from the um, the wedding at the start, very loudly, trump, literally trumpeting what this what kind of movie you're about to watch, 
the movie serves no purpose because yes um they are the only connection that uh colin firth's character jamie has with anything because he is friends with them and you see him briefly at the wedding but otherwise his story is pretty much entirely isolated from everything else and again it's like okay this is very vanilla uh, rom-com story you kind of every time every time he turns up you're like okay is something gonna happen now no okay all right is this gonna tie things together at the end no okay um I, I have some friends of mine, I posted on Facebook that I was watching it and I got a lot of people going, ha ha, it's a great film. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'd love it. Uh, I asked, did ask someone, I did ask for an opinions about what the film was about and I only got one answer. And that okay. was, regardless of our situation, we are all doing the best we can, whether it works out for us or not. We're all connected as humans by our experience. In other news, water is wet. Um, <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> And <laughs> they just sort of quickly talk about Laura Linney's arc as well, which is what a waste of a super talented actor there. Yeah. Um, she's the and another interesting possibility for a more fleshed out story. Again, that could have worked. She's got no space to work in either. She nope. works, as we said, for Alan Rickman. She's got mm-hmm. the hots for the local, uh, for her colleague. Uh, uh, I forget the actor's name. Carl is his name. Uh, the Rodrigo Santiago or something. He was he's in Brazilian. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's a very handsome man. Uh, yes. And she has the hots for him. At the same time, she has a brother who's in a mental care home or something like that, who's violent mm-hmm. and, and, and se- severely mentally ill, I think is the, mm-hmm. probably the polite way to put it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she has the opportunity to get with Carl uh, after a Christmas party, but mm-hmm. she has to answer a call from the mental home, I guess, or her brother and go and visit him instead. Mm. And then her story just disappears. Yeah. We it don't just... get anything, res- any kind of conclusion. Like, I mean, if I go to a rom-com, most people want a happy ending, right? Um, mm-hmm. If you think about it, this film does not have a happy ending for a lot of his characters. No. Uh, so the, the love triangle, we talked about what happened to them. They, they're Cherry Tell, Edgy Falls in, in bliss, in, in, in bliss of ignorance. Um, yep. the, the other two fucking know what they did and had to live with it for the rest of their lives. Um, yep. uh, uh, Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman have to stay in a loveless marriage now, knowing that he cheated on, on her. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Laura Linney never gets to shag the hot Brazilian guy, and yep. we don't know what happens to her. Um, I guess Chris Marshall works out okay for him. And yep. he gets uh, he gets to have casual sex with um, with uh, January Jones and uh, Alicia Cuthbert in the United States, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. two other hot American girls turn up in the in the UK with him when he comes home. Yep. Um, uh, Martin Freeman and Judy, I guess we don't really ever see what happens to them in the end. I think they're insinuated they're dating, but that's about it. What no? Because the, the, uh, just before they go into the the the, the Christmas. Um, uh, thing they see their friends and they kind of hold up their hands as if so like oh yep and i think they were showing off rings were they engaged again people are given a lot of space to work in there yeah um it, it's i i just the other i was going to mention this earlier but how, what did you think about all the fat shaming in this film like 
apparently Martin McCutcheon is fat because everybody calls her yeah. chubby in this film. I'm like, yeah, she's not that... remotely fat. What the fuck no. was going on in the UK? Yeah, I I don't I don't remember. I mean, I will admit it. I am the worst of the worst. I am a straight white skinny Englishman. I am the ultimate in f- as far away from any minority that you can possibly ever get. Um but I also feel like I am generally aware of what's mostly happening socially around me and I don't remember there being that and I don't certainly don't remember it being something that was the in joke or I, I, I don't I don't know where that why or how that came about and there are certain characters in there that it'd be sort of it would have been much more cutting and interesting and I would have been suddenly more interested in it if they had been making skinny jokes against Kira Knightley's character for example uh, that's not cool as well we probably shouldn't be making people feel bad about how they look I mean you know, at least that's something different to so like, oh, fat chick or whatever. And they keep calling her fat. And I'm like, I don't yeah, see it. What the fuck? She's it's a little not. bit like, not even remotely fat. Like, no. what the fuck? It was, she's perhaps she's a little more shapely than, than Kira Niley. She's got some curves on her. Yeah. Um, but that's not the same thing as fat. And even if family are yeah. calling her chubby and stuff like that, you're like, oh, that yeah. was kind of gross. What to say about Colin Firth's angle? Colin Firth looks a lot more comfortable doing this material than Liam Neeson and Alan Rickman did for me. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was, you know, paint by numbers stuff really for him. And he's, he's yeah, hundred percent. Um, just yeah. And the, uh, my last criticism, and I had many, <laughs> is Bill Nye's story. He just didn't bother connecting it to the rest of the story at all. He's just the music in the background. That's all it is. That's all you need. Like, and honestly, I didn't want more. I guess not. But if you're going to get over trouble of making these super loose connections to everybody, you know, like the secretary, you know, who Alan Rickman's fucking lives next door to the the chubby girl, supposedly, who the prime minister wants to shag, you know, like you're going to get over trouble of doing all of that. Why not, you know, go the full Monty? Um, I have absolutely... Matt did go the full Monty. Thank you very much. <laughs> this film has... Uh, I am completely flummoxed about what people enjoy about this film. I know people mm. like cheesy films. I know people like Christmas movies and people feel good movies. That's great. But a lot of this movie's not feel good. Like, how do you feel good about the, what happens to poor old Emma Thompson at the end of this film? It's like, yeah. how do you not notice the complete mess the story is? It's yeah. a complete mess. It makes no sense. And, and what is the fucking point? Let, let's just also highlight another one of the egregious issues that i have with it and it, it goes into the liam neeson um stepson story we are shown them the first time we see them is at the funeral of the mother then that is entirely fucking forgotten and it's like okay yep just focus on the good stuff ladies and gentlemen and you can get through christmas it's like <laughs> what is this he moves it's- on pretty quickly doesn't he yeah, he really does. But anyway, we have talked far too much on this movie. It's shit, people. I'm sorry it's, if you're a fan. I'm, I'm sorry to offend you. This is a bad film and you should feel bad about liking it. <laughs> but it is now my turn. 
Like you have the keys. And I am following Rowan Atkinson, but I'm not following him to where you might expect. No, I am taking us a different direction. And I am taking us to somewhere that we have... I don't know if we've ever actually gone there as a genre in chain movie. We're going to 2002. We are going to a movie written by James Gunn. We are going to Scooby-Doo. Oh, okay. This is James, yeah. this is James Gunn's first uh, feature. Mm-hmm. Yep. TV um, adaptations, I think, are new. And uh, people who thought we were treating ourselves recently, this has a 5 and 35. So don't get your hopes mm-hmm. up. So this is uh, this is a very, very much available kind of everywhere. Netflix, Binge, um, you can rent it basically everywhere. The, the, the family kids movie, I don't think we've done as a link in the chain before, but there are still plenty of places that you can go from here. Oh, Obviously, indeed. we did already mention James Gunn. You've got Matthew Lillard. You've got Freddie Prince Jr., Sarah Michelle Gellar. You have got Linda Cardinelli, Isla Fisher. There are a nice few little areas that we can go through to there. Uh, I, I would like to say I'm looking forward to it. But um, you know, <laughs> I think Bro-bro. we might have gone. To, I think we um we definitely watched Marmaduke back in the day on the old. Uh, uh, at oh, least I did. Right. I think I lost the challenge yeah. and I had to watch Marmaduke at some point. I think it's in the same space, and, and you know, how much worse than that could this be? I think it's probably better. <laughs> that wouldn't be difficult. <laughs> um, Marmaduke is really bad. It was pretty uh, awful. Maybe, maybe we will eventually finish off the trilogy of CGI dogs with Clifford the Big Red Dog. Is that the thing? It exists? Yeah. <laughs> it's really Alrighty bad. then. I, that's something to look forward to. Scooby-Doo, yeah. James Gunn. Um, mm. It was a hit. It was a big hit. Yep. Um, and, you know, maybe we can slide sideways into a bit of Velma next week. I don't know. Um, <laughs> that hasn't gone well, has it? Um mm. Should we talk about your your uh, uh, pick of the week? Yeah, the, let's uh, go on to Donnie Darko, ladies and gentlemen. Two thousand one, the directorial debut of one Richard Kelly, who has not had a successful career since this. He went on two to features. Yeah, Southland Tales, which was one of the first and few movies that Dwayne the Rock Johnson did to try and stretch beyond just being the action star. And then um, the box, the box, yeah, and that has James Marsden and um, uh, Cameron Diaz and Frank Langella. I think was the the main kind of antagonist, so to speak. One film on the upcoming slate called Corpus Christi, and when I did a bit of a Google around about it, I found articles talking about him making this film from two thousand and eleven. Yeah, so... it's been sitting there. It has been, uh, he hasn't had a good career, but Donnie Darko was a bit of a flop when it came out. No one was really oh. quite sure what it was about. I don't think the studio had any idea how to market it. No. Um, I always go back to to um, my 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 ex wife who was an absolutely hated this film mm. because she'd been assured it was a horror film, and then when she watched it, it was not a horror film. Hence. 
came as a, I think we've talked about in the past, the Donnie Darko yeah. effect, where you get told something is the wrong, you get something is yeah. told advertised incorrectly to you, and that affects yeah. your enjoyment of the end product. Uh, this is a science fiction time travel movie, I guess. Yep. I think that's IMDb's, the easiest way of putting it. IMDb says drama, mystery, sci-fi. Mm-hmm. As you said, Donnie, uh, uh, but it probably the star-making vehicle for, for Jake Gyllenhaal. If you Definitely. don't count Bubble Boy, and I do not. <laughs> <laughs> um, we also have uh, Jenna Malone, Mary McDonald, Holmes Osborne. That's a name you won't recognize, but you know his face. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, uh, Patrick Swayze in one of his best roles. Uh, Great role a, for him. As I said, very, very, very young Seth Rogen as well. So let me um, just read the IMDb uh, synopsis. After narrowly escaping a bizarre accident, a troubled teenager is plagued by visions of a man in a large rabbit suit who manipulates him to commit a series of crimes. That in itself is actually kind of a good synopsis, but it definitely doesn't go, it doesn't give you much more than the the cursory stuff of what Donnie Darko tries to deal with as a narrative. This is a when movie is it... about um, destiny. Yes. How, how recently had you seen it? <coughs> um, I, maybe four or five years ago. I couldn't remember the last time I saw it. Mm. How do you, how are you thinking of holding up? How, so it's 22 years old now. Hmm. I still, I think visually it overall um, holds up really well. I think they captured the eighties, which is the aesthetic for the uh, for the time period. I think they do that very well. Um, I think the di- the director's cut is terrible in comparison to the theatrical cut. They add in these. It, it's like massive. It's like looking at my screen and you're just seeing a page full page of text that's supposed to be text from the book the philosophy of time travel and it's it's awful so the theatrical cut is the way to go for for one thing i should note also apparently it isn't actually a director's cut that's just what the studio chose to call it richard kelly does not consider it a director's cut it's he considers it more of a special edition and that the studio when they release a dv thought it might sell more if it's a marketing shit Marketing mm. to call the director's cut, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think overall it actually does fairly well, especially taking into account that it is the directorial debut of of someone who is playing with a lot of highfalutin <laughs> story devices of time travel, destiny, God, potential superpowers things like that because there's a lot of there's a lot of implication and insinuation in throughout the whole movie not a lot of actual genuine answers that are resounding kind of full stop answers um we've had a number of conversations about um what donnie darko is about and the particularly the ending of him laughing and the the now famous sequence of um gary jules version of mad world as it's all the people kind of waking up or being pensive in bed thinking and what what are, what are they actually thinking how are they actually responding is this them having dreams of this pr- 
alternative reality or what it's i think overall it's standing up quite well i tend to disagree i think this is aged poorly um okay. i think the effects it was low budget at the time yeah the effects um the only reason it got made is because uh, drew barrymore's company i think agreed to fund for four and a half million and she had to star in it which is fine she's good in it yeah. um but the effects aren't holding up well uh, especially no. the glob sequences i mean you've probably most people have seen want to see this film seen it now they <laughs> yeah the, i'm not gonna put spoilers up for the, a, the, the, the watery blob things that come out of their chest that sort of seem to indicate their yeah. destiny of where they're going almost the path they're about to follow mm. um they look they i kind of it was good with that 20 years ago 20 yeah. years ago 20 2023 no they are not yeah. looking good even even the the vortex thing over the house it it looks just easy. looks badly implemented and surprising i have seen this film a few times over the years so i can't remember the last time exactly mm. jesus film slow yeah it's slow and not and if you not much happens <laughs> you know um it is a think piece. I'll give it that in the sense that this is a film and a director and a writer who's asking lots of questions. Mm. I don't think he knows the answers, though. Um, Definitely not. So, I mean, there's a funny uh, note in the um, INDV trivia. It said Seth Rogen and Jake Gyllenhaal agreed after filming it completed they had no idea what the film was about. Um, <laughs> and it's good to know 22 years later, I am still on the same page as them. I've got no idea what this film's about. And this is definitely that kind of film you walk out of in 2001 going, who is that guy? What the <laughs> fuck just happened? You know, like, um, I, for me, what was interesting going back and watching again now was the standout performance for me and I hadn't really noticed before. Mm. This time around, I noticed Jenna Malone's performance as Gretchen. Um, a lot more, for some reason, I meant to skip over it maybe in the um, showiness and she does not, doing much but what she does is brilliant she's yes. outstanding in this film as gretchen in the yes. sense that she's kind of a bystander of a lot of what's going on but yep. i i thought she was she was really nailing her role here and like mm -hmm. i was having a conversation with michelle while watching it going i think she's had some personal problems but maybe i was getting her mixed up with some other young star about the same time because i don't believe she has but no, um she, yeah she, she she's was still working yeah, she's definitely still working. She was in the um, Zack Snyder Justice League. Um, That's not a good thing. No. Wait. Uh, oh, it might not have been Justice League. It might have been the extended version of Man of Steel. She was in Sucker Punch. I know that much. Yes. The um, But the other performance that I'd like to call out as, as another great one because of the minimal things that she seems to do, but it works really well, is Mary McDonnell. Hmm. She is great as a, a very cavalier mom, but also kind of steadfast in her ideology and protection and respect of her children's decisions and things like that. It's and like the the dinner scene where um, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, um Elizabeth mentions that purposefully kind of goading a dad, saying that I'm going to vote for Dukakis, and yeah. it that inspires thing and and then conversations like you're such a fuck ass and things like that 
the the way the way that she reacts to different to like word or conversation pieces is like that's appropriate this is not it's she's subtle but does really well and for me is it like she's actually a very accomplished actor but mm. you know the only film i can remember her from apart from this one was independence day um yeah she played the president's wife of course she was also in battlestar galactica which i know a lot of people do enjoy uh, and I mean, you, you called that out there, uh, the relationship between Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal, as it should, works really well. There's an actor we don't see anywhere near enough of these days, is Maggie Gyllenhaal, no. but she has gone on to directing. Of course, yeah. last year we watched um, the, the Lost Daughter, um, which she, yeah. she directed and was quite good. Um, I just found myself getting really bored during his film this time around. I think uh, maybe it's more fun if you're stoned um like what do you think this film is actually about in your opinion i think that it is maybe it's just me projecting because this inspired one of the core elements of my book series of the idea of destiny and is it possible to be outside of destiny and change destiny and things like that um i think that this is about destiny and understanding that sometimes your destiny is to end and sometimes fighting against that can result in worse things i think <laughs> Um, that's interesting. That is, that is an interesting interpretation. I don't have a, a counter to that because, mm. yeah, this seems a little bit too deep for me. Um, you just don't understand it, man. Well, look, I mean, that's fair, right? Like, I mean, you know, uh, it, there's a lot going on in this. Maybe there's a lot going on in this story. Maybe there's not. That's true. Did you watch it on your own this time? Uh, no, Michelle and I watched it together. Has Michelle seen it before? I believe she has when it first came out. Mm, okay. Because Maybe I watched the, it. Because with is this Crystal. the being there of movies? Do you remember Ooh. being there to sell a movie? Yeah. Could be. Oh. Like on this ultimate high level of playing 4D chess against everybody and super, super smart when he's actually fucking stupid and like just sort of being. Just sort of doing what seems naturally. Everybody's reading all this uh, nuance and intelligence into his some fairly simple actions. Mm. I wonder if Donnie Darko is the film version of that in a sense that there's absolutely actually nothing going on in this film. It's just people mm. are throwing, seeing things, reading into it um, in a way that you know the director could never have foreseen. Mm. Yeah, that is not a suggestion. That it is um, it, it, it is a an open question and. Yeah, I, th I think that um, this movie is at least in part designed to elicit debate and question about what it is about. I think that is a crutch for a writer and director who came up with an idea and the core idea of, you know, the opening is interesting. 
someone rousing from their sleep because they hear a voice and it leads them away and then it's an unusual entity telling them the world is going to end the next time we see him he's wake uh wakes up in the middle of nowhere and so like that's a cool setup now give me story and everything is reaction and anytime anything interesting actually happens we never actually see it for example like the the bronze statue of the the, the dog it has an axe in its head and it's there's there's a, a line saying that's that's solid bronze right it's like okay how did donnie get up there and do this does he have superpowers and how how did he get the car at the end into the portal can he fly is he superman i don't know i'm gonna ask questions about that because i feel like i'm missing a lot of important story elements here and i'm having to fill in the blanks and the director's just going hmm, maybe you don't know <laughs> just being coy it's like going, where oh, we, 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 idea we, than what i can read his thoughts you'd be like shit if we were reading his thoughts, maybe he'd be going, shit, I should have thought of that. Fuck, I'll just say nothing, you know. <laughs> like That was intentional. <laughs> you make up your own minds. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like, I'm not going to sit here and say it's a bad movie at all. It's it's interesting given his, his later work does not reflect mm. well on this work. No. Um, have you seen Southland Tales? I remember trying to watch it. And for one reason or another, I couldn't make it through. Oh, there are many reasons. It's because it's crap. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's probably is that's probably putting it lightly. It is. I a think that's another mess. one of the movies that just no one knows what it's actually about. I don't think he ended up making the film he wanted to make. That that thing was a whole saga, and there's there's actually a good Joe Blow episode, I think, on what the fuck happened about movie yeah. on, on Saffron Tales. It's worth watching because it is an interesting story. Notably, I could link to it after Scooby Doo, um, via Sharon Michelle Geller. Um, I don't know, but I want to do that to us three weeks in a row. Um, mm, it's that's a little really mean. bad. Um, but it's almost like you see that, okay, and you remember hearing the story, and you go, "That's an interesting idea for a story." Yeah, and you see the utter mess that he made of it, and go, "So was the first one a fluke?" Yeah, and. Yeah. I feel like the answer is yes. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, and I'm somewhat tempted to go out and see the unofficial sequel, Estarco, which came out in 2009. Oh, no, don't. No? Bad, huh? That's bad. <laughs> that's that's really bad. That's that's not a good movie. And it it doesn't even feel sorry about being bad. It's like, yeah. I'm sitting in my own shit. What of it? You don't like the smell? Go away. <laughs> uh, interesting that you had the same actor who played the sister in the first one, mm -hmm. the second one. Um, it was an interesting choice. What did, you said Crystal hadn't seen it before. What mm. did she make of it? We had lots of conversations about what it's about. And... I don't think we got anywhere particular about where she landed on if she actually liked it, but it posited some questions. 
Well, that's that's probably better than you. That is the perfect a answer to a question about did you, did someone like Donnie Darko? <laughs> mm. I'm not sure. In other words, you'll find out. You'll never know. Quit asking. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yes. No. Who's asking? <laughs> Have you got anything else you'd like to say about Donnie Darko? No, no. I think that um, many of the people in that have gone on to have much more interesting careers. Like Jake Gyllenhaal shows a good modicum of talent here. Um, and he has gone on to do some absolutely stunning performances, particularly his work with Denny Villeneuve. He is a really strong actor and Jenna Maloney, I have enjoyed her work. She doesn't get enough of it, in my opinion. Mary McDonald called out, thought she was great. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, she's great again. Doesn't doesn't get enough work. Don't get to, get to see her enough. That's it. I assume she just wants to direct films now, which is fine. Yeah. Um, if you, um, but yeah, I, I, I'm with you as as, as actors. And you see them a little bit more often. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be nice. Should we move on to, to Leslie? Back to, yes, uh, let's go to Monday. Leslie. So this is a film which for which Andrea Riseborough has been nominated for a somewhat controversial mm-hmm. Academy Award uh, for mm-hmm. Best Actress. Yep. Uh, inspired by true events, a West Texas single mother wins the lottery and squanders it just as fast, leaving behind a world of heartbreak. Years later, with her charm running out and nowhere to go, she fights to rebuild her life and find redemption. This is directed by Michael Morris. It's his first feature, um, best known for his TV work on things like Better Call Saul, um, Bloodline, 13 Reasons Why. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, written, not written by Michael, it's written by Ryan Pinnacle. Uh, uh, I am not familiar with, um, and I don't. He hasn't done a whole lot. Yeah, he hasn't done feature films. really anything particularly. Uh, if you sort of noted, obviously Andrea Riseborough is our uh, the uh, star of the film. Uh, other familiar faces you might notice in there would be Stephen Root playing mm-hmm. Dutch and Alison Janney. <laughs> I did say as soon as he popped on the screen, I'm like, "Excuse me, excuse me, I believe you took my motorcycle." Uh, <laughs> uh, they, they took I, my beer. <laughs> I, I, I burned the building down. Um, Alison Janney as Nancy, yep. uh, and Mark Moran is probably the other familiar face in here as Sweeney. Um, mm. I actually considered this being our chain movie this week because Andrea Riper was in uh, <laughs> Never Let Me Go last week, but <laughs> I did not. Uh, it is a story about addiction mainly. Mm. Um, what well, I think, I think for me, we split this into two parts mm. um, the Andrea Riceborough's performance and the film overall. But that's just my opinion. What did you make of it? Um, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a, a film with two focused uh, focuses and they never truly come together. Um, Andrea Riceborough does her best impression of Charlize Theron doing Monster, of 
dirtying up, uglification, and just diving into an addiction character role. And she does that with great abandon and with a fearless attitude. And then there's the rest of the movie, which is very paint by numbers, very typical, very obvious, and very safe. And it doesn't quite fit for me. And therefore, I, I don't like this movie on two folds. I don't think it's a good movie because it doesn't do anything inventive or new with the source material that it is presenting. And I, the fact that it has these two very different parts clashing so frequently throughout the whole film, it just feels disjo disjointed. Um, Alison Janney and Stephen Root, their, their scenes and their interactions with the world around them and the world itself seems very organic and lived in and authentic and they do really good good job and most of the surrounding cast do a good job of kind of being what they need to be it is it's it's like we're going to be seeing it next week with scooby-doo where it's live action um performers with a cgi dog they're never gonna fit together no matter how good you make the cgi the performance it's it's just gonna be weird and it feels uncomfortable and if you're basing it on a true event you want it to feel th through and through realistic and believable and it's it jarred me watching the whole film uh, i don't fully agree with you i partially agree with you Mm. Um, How I dare agree you? with this. This is, in of this itself is not a particularly. Fuck you! It used to be about the music, man. Now it's all about you. Uh, <laughs> you either agree um, with me, or we're done. That's it. You know. Oh no, I I forgot that part of a contract. Um, <laughs> we have a contract. Oh no. <laughs> we probably. You know. Um, it's as a film. I don't think it's great. I don't think it's entirely successful. I think it's a fair effort mm -hmm. uh, at, at, at a first feature. It's not, I didn't find it offensive mm -hmm. um, or terrible. I mean, compared to the other two films, the three films we watched this week, it was my favorite. Okay. Even though it's, I, it's, I think it's successful in a nice, in it, um, but I think all of that is due to Andrea Riseborough. I th think you're being a little bit harsh. So you, I can see your point. You are right. It is the classic Oscars play, making yeah. a very attractive woman or person, in like a la Brendan Fraser last week, um, mm. you know, ugly and downtrodden. You know, like that's that's a mm. classic ploy that gets you a nod every time. Yeah. Um, but I think that cheapens what is a spectacular performance by her. Um, as someone who has been reasonably close to addiction, not, not mm. personally necessarily, but I'm, you know, I, I know some people who've been very close to me who've been through some very severe addiction, 
her performance rang extremely true to me mm-hmm. in that the the way she she you see how like there were points in time where she would uh, be at a bar and she'd have no money and she'd want to go drinking and so she would almost look around the bar at the, at the men in the bar like they were prey mm. um, almost like a predator to sort of yoink onto them and then when she wanted something from them, the superficial charm would come out at that as the uh, um, synopsis sort of notes, the, the fading charm mm. would come out and she would she would try and utilize that to get what she wanted from people. And you can see it almost process through the different stages of, you know, what she needed to do to try and get what she wanted. That would that would turn to hostility and anger and aggression very quickly. And she you could she did this consistently through the film in her interactions with people. Uh, mm-hmm. Early in the film, to she gets kicked out of a flop house motel. She can't afford the pay anymore. She goes to stay with her son James, who's um, uh, she hasn't seen played. He's played by Owen Teague, who mm. I think puts in a decent performance in a small role. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's happy to put her up as long as she doesn't drink. But she can't keep that promise, and she starts drinking and steals money from his roommate. And he's forced to kick her out, and she goes to stay with um, the the, uh, the couple who looked after him when she abandoned him in mm-hmm. Dutch and Nancy. But in dealing with James, you can see him, her trying to cajole, charm him, and then flip straight into anger and aggression to try and get what she wants. So this isn't this is a nuance and 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 um, really uh, nicely done performance. I was trying to find the right words here. It's what happens when I work during the day. <laughs> I shouldn't work anymore. Um, it takes all my energy. But it's it's, it's <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. Call my agent. I'm going to my trailer. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, she doesn't do it. She does it consistently. It's a consistent performance in the sense that mm. it feels real. Uh, as I said, someone who's actually dealt with somebody with it on the end of addiction, it's, it, it really, it rang true to me. And she is spectacular throughout the film. Where the film shines is because of her. And to a lesser extent, I think I enjoyed Stephen Root and Alison Janney's performance. They are high quality character actors, even though I'm like, Stephen Root is a freaking biker, you know, like I yeah. think his role in Office Space or in Dodgeball is kind of the, the mousy sort of pathetic guy. With me, Bill said I could play the radio with a reasonable hour between eight and nine while I'm coordinating and, you know, like, <laughs> so, but he actually comes across, right? he does quite well as, as Dutch. Uh, as the bike is a fairly yeah. you know abrupt but biker but but with a quietly spoken but you know strong mm. um alison janney is she's fucking great at everything she does she's she's like, alison janney yeah um she, she win the academy award a few years ago did she win for tonya i tonya no she did win for i tonya yeah um so she does she's a very uh abrasive character who doesn't like aunt doesn't like um leslie at all and mm. really the only reason she stepped in to help is to because she cares about james and she pretty much goes out of her way to humiliate her when she's back in town mm. um which isn't helpful so those guys were fantastic and they really held it up mark moron is good i think he sort of noted that most of the actors do their parts well mm-hmm. where i think the film fails for me and i think maybe maybe this is what you're talking about a little bit is it's he's involvement and his motivation in the story is a bit of a mystery to me yeah so he runs a motel 
um, which uh, he um, finds uh, he, he finds Leslie's suitcase at the front of the motel he runs. Mm-hmm. Um, he runs it with Royal, who I'm trying to find the actor plays Royal is Andre Royo. He's Royal. And he ends up finds uh, Leslie rooting around at the front trying to find a suitcase a day or two after she left it there and ends up sort of, despite the fact he doesn't actually know her, but Royal does know her from when she lived in the town earlier and tells him that she is trouble. Mm. He still sort of, his heart goes out to her and he offers her a job as a cleaner at the motel, which will pay her a, a nominal wage. Actually, seven fifty an hour is probably a good fucking wage in America. Oh, mm-hmm. burn America. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, but also includes room, uh, room and board, which is what she, she really needs. It's a pretty sweet deal. Very sweet deal. But what bothered me about this is why? I mean, she's not, I mean, like, not exactly. He doesn't know her. He's never met her before at the, mm. in his life at this point. It's the first conversation they have together. He offers her a paid job and somewhere to live in his motel when she is rooting around through garbage looking yeah. for her suitcase. And it's quite obviously, to put it politely, down on her luck. Um, yeah. Why? She, I mean, like, it's not yeah, like she's in it had Because the story needs it to happen. Exactly right. It's why he does it. And, you're like, and they never actually thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll go with it. You've earned some credit film. Maybe we'll look back around at some point at the end and go, this is the reason, you know. Hmm. Um, what we were, Michelle and I were watching it together, we were expecting, well, maybe he's a recovering alcoholic himself and mm-hmm. he sees something of himself in Leslie and he wants to be the change and he's going to reach out to her like someone reached out to help him. That's not it. Nope. I don't think we ever get a sufficient answer. The closest is that he finds her attractive. And his wife was an alcoholic at some point. Yeah. But that doesn't really ever click. It was never really mm. – his story about his wife seems very detached from his feelings from Leslie. Yeah. And they don't actually ever make that connection sufficiently. So he yeah. really goes out on a limb for this woman. Like she yells at him. She lets him down. She goes out drinking. She turns up late. She does a mm-hmm. shitty job. And, you know, he comes, he comes in with a bee stick of firing her. Mm-hmm. That he really goes out on a limb because he doesn't even own this motel. Royal owns the motel. And so, yeah. you know, he's not even really risking his own stuff. He's risking his friend's stuff. But, like, yeah. And, and so for me, that was the, that was one of the weak points of a film was that you're like, I need an explanation about why someone really, really do that other yeah. than the story needs it to happen. Yeah. The other weak point of a film was the, the, um, can we put the spoilers up just in case someone's yeah, interested let's in watching spoilers, just in case. Spoilers. I think go. I need to talk about the end of a film to explain why I found the end of a film frustrating. Yeah. But you've got the warning. If you want to see it, come back in 10 minutes. Yep. <laughs> Maybe 20. It's us. Um, <laughs> so she ends up running a diner at the end of a movie. Mm. Now, they kind of signposted this a little bit because there's a couple of points you sort of was looking longingly at the building across the road mm. from the motel, which was an old ice cream store, and you're like, she ended up crashing in there a night or two because it was yeah. abandoned. And I'm like, oh, okay, she's going to reopen the ice cream store at some point, maybe. Mm-hmm. But then, like, two-thirds of the way through the film, we cut back again to the video of her winning the $190,000. And mm. she's like, oh, maybe I'll open a diner somewhere. 
And that clip of audio, we hadn't seen that at the start in the clip of the, we saw that same video of the, the TV interview at the start of a film when she won the money, but we didn't see that part about her saying she wanted to run a diner. We mm. didn't get that not that um, piece of information halfway, two-thirds of the way through the film. Two-thirds, yeah. And so you're like, oh, okay, well, well, we've seen her looking at the thing across the road, and now I have that piece of information. Mm. I didn't need George's superpower to tell yeah. me how this film's going to end. You know, yeah. she's going to end up running a diner across the road. And, yeah. And, you know, and she does. And you're like, yeah. hey, I mean, maybe that's the real story. I don't know. Um, but it felt very convenient and it felt very lazy. Like, yeah. signposted, you know, her looking across the road at the stories. That's cool. You know, um, but maybe they should have dropped that piece of audio about the diner in the interview at the start of a film. You know, because then I probably wouldn't have remembered what happened, you know, by the end or of the Or maybe have it as, like, the end, the son, when he turns up, he's like, oh, guess what I found, by the way. And he plays it, and as the credits are rolling, we hear that. And so, like, that was just a, a thing that was just in her mind that kept her going through. Now but by putting it where it did, it just yeah. felt really okay well you've just given it's up a an easy sign it's me basically telling us exactly what's going to happen and i didn't need that like it, it, i think personally like i said i think the best place to put it would have been the start of a film because i'm getting the whole tv interview at the start i don't know which part of this is relevant so i don't know which part i should be paying attention to when you stick yeah. the same interview halfway through the film it stands out like dog's balls because i didn't hear that line the first mm -hmm. time around and now i'm like well okay and then it yep. feeds back into the original problem I had with Mark Baron's character. He and Royal apparently pay to fix the place up or something. Like she's like, "Oh, I can save money to do this," and like, but like we just sort of cut to six months later or something. Yeah, and and it's done. And you know, I was at yeah. the very least hoping for a nineteen eighties inspired, you know, cleaning montage. I need a montage. <laughs> you know, like the girl can do it. You know, I don't know, like painting or something, <laughs> but. It's just it's just done and like we just don't ask questions about how the fuck they afforded the thousands yeah. of dollars that it cost to fix this up. It's amazing what you can do with arts and crafts sessions, Travis. Exactly. It, it, was there a working bee? No one in town likes her. That wasn't going to happen. So, <laughs> you know, like it, it was, it was like I said, Taylor two stories. I think it's it's a bit like um, an extreme example was when we saw uh, Thor: Love and Thunder last year. You watch it, you're like, Christian Bale, man. He's in a yeah. fucking different yeah. universe. Yeah, he's, he, he's, he's somehow moved, two movies got spliced together. And in this one, Andrea Riseborough, I assume she's an executive producer. I assume she's the reason this film got made. Um, has absolutely knocked it out of the park in terms of her performance in a very average film. As a, an average film, very average makes it sound poor. It's fine. It's just got some flaws. It's it's very paint by numbers Oscar movie surrounding a very strong actor performance. Yeah, I I like her performance. I don't think she'll win. Um, I, I think it's Kate Blanchett's um, mm -hmm. or Michelle Yao's. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad she got nominated. Um, and. Uh, that should know. I haven't seen the films. The, con the controversy, of course, is that she's white and she got the nomination over people like uh, Viola Davis for The Woman King and mm. I forget the actress's name, but she was in Till. 
which hasn't even come oh, out. Oh, yeah. Um, but I haven't seen those films, so I really can't comment about whether this is better or worse than either of those performances. Other than to say that this is definitely a worthy performance. Good evening, Richard. We Good are well. Good evening, Richard. You are joining us just as we finish up talking about To Leslie. And we are now going to go on to this week's episode star of the Armchair Producers Binge, Browse, and Burn. And I've got a strong browse or weak binge to get us going. And this is an interesting one. It is the consultant on Prime Video. This is the one starring, starring Christoph Waltz, right? Yes. Um, it's It follows a relationship between employee and boss, asking how far we will go to get ahead and to survive. And I started watching the first episode, and then I found myself three episodes in from eight episodes that are now all out. Uh, Christoph Waltz is very much in his creepy Hans Lander style intelligent mediated performance mode he is suitably charming and creepy and funny all at the same time he plays a character called Regis Patoff and the first episode follows um, him joining a uh, a mobile phone games production company where the the head of the studio we don't see him but um one of the main stars of the show Brittany O'Grady who plays Elaine is showing a group of kids, school kids around just talking about making all these games and stuff like oh would you like to go and meet him and she leads them up there and then she goes down and starts talking to one of our other leads, Nate Wolf, um, plays Craig. And then suddenly there's just gunshots from inside this guy's office. And they run in and they see a kid, one of the kids has just shot this um this highfalutin producer guy repeatedly. And cuts to a little bit later, the studio has been shuttered. Um, Elaine and Craig are kind of both separately kind of trying to work out what they're going to do next. And then at like 11 o'clock at night, Christoph Waltz Regis just turns up and says, oh yeah, I'm the consultant that he hired. So I'll see everyone bright and early tomorrow. And it's suitably creepy. And it's, there's, there's elements to this. I think you might like this in the same way that it kind of, we can't both, both enjoyed brain dead. Where it's an mm. unusual medley of genres put together to create something that's a little bit different. And I'm interested to see what happens with the rest of the I, show. It's on my to-do list because I always have time for Christoph Waltz. Exactly. It sounds like he's he's in his comfortable space. Wheelhouse. Yes, he, he is doing what he knows how to do and everyone else around him is suitably trying to catch up and that is the way that this whole thing hinges it's apparently based on a book um but i've no, i've never heard of it at all um but i'm i'm invested it's uh, got enough mystery to it and suspense and kind of creepy discomfort I, like there's a there's a scene where he 
just takes Craig out uh, where he kind of hijacks Craig into going out on the town and they're sitting in a bar and he's just looking over at all these guys. It's like, how many of them do you think you could take in a bar fight? I reckon I could take four. And with surprise, I think you could take down three. And there's just that awkward silence of, sort of like, is he kind of forcing his employee to get into a bar fight? What? And then it just gets weirder from there. It's, it's unusual. It's cool. I like it. I want to watch the rest of it. So it is a soft binge, definite browse. Good call. I'm, and I, I am looking forward to see, having time to see it when I can. Yeah. My, I'm going to start with a, a browse recommendation, but let me say yeah. a, a warm browse. Like, mm. Notice we're finding little, little, you know, space in his measurement, you know, to sort of go, <laughs> it's not quite this, it's not quite that. And that is Community Squad, which is available here in Australia on Netflix. Okay. Um, it is uh, from uh, Argentina. Yeah. Um, you and your love for Argentina. Well, you know, you, can, you can't quite see the man behind me, but I have the, uh, the Card of Darin poster over here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, unfortunately, he's not involved in this. Obviously, my partner has Argentine heritage, so we see an Argentinian show prominently uh, featured on Netflix. We're probably going to take a look. Mm-hmm. Just out of curiosity, um, you don't have that relationship with your home country, do you? You don't see something in Britain. You don't see EastEnders on something and go, oh, miss it, miss it. You know, the well, cold, the dank. You know, there's there's only so much sort of like you, uh, the only way is Essex. It's like just no. I, <laughs> I happily consistently forget that technically i'm an essex boy i'm a suffolksonian thank you very much <laughs> anyway community squad a ragtag civilian patrol squad created to improve the image of a police inadvertently put their lives at risk when confronting some strange criminals uh this is a comedy a, crim- a crime slash comedy show um right. the community the um does he miss EastEnders? Who doesn't miss EastEnders, Richard? I mean, uh, I've never seen it, and I miss it. <laughs> You're a terrible person. <laughs> no one, no one, no one misses EastEnders. Um, so uh, close enough to Essex. <laughs> don't do this to me, Richard. I love you dearly, but don't don't call me out like that, man. If you're listening to the podcast version, you're wondering what the hell we're doing. We, this is recorded live around about half past seven Australian Eastern mm-hmm. Standard Time or Eastern Summertime as it is in the moment. And you too can be like Richard here and jump on into Twitch or mm-hmm. uh, YouTube uh, and you can ask questions and make fun of George about being from England. Um, it's, it's not difficult. <laughs> so it is, it is a crime comedy. So the main uh, act, uh, character is... Um, even have his name here uh i don't think it's, it makes it hard because uh, it's all in spanish um join us sorry you chose this you, sp- you say did. it <laughs> unknown episodes uh i think it's played by santiago korovsky um okay. and he's breaking up his girlfriend he has his backpack stolen which has uh some money in it and uh he ends up joining the community squad by mistake um which is this as it sort of notes a sort of sort of like the PSOs here in Melbourne. They don't carry guns. They're community policing that the mm. a local police force has implemented to try and improve their 
their image by hiring diversity hires, if you make sense. So there is a, a small person, there's a handicapped person in a wheelchair, there's an older mm-hmm. person, there's an overweight person. And uh, Santiago is hired. So he's not the character's name, it's the actor's name. The, the, the protagonist is hired because he is turned up to report his backpack missing, but they think he's there to interview for a job for the community squad. Uh, and they ask him uh, if he's uh, asking if he has any disabilities. Anyway, he says he's Jewish, and they go, "Is that a disability?" Um, <laughs> um, so it's not. It's actually it's very tongue in cheek about the whole diversity issue in the sense of like it's, it is a police force trying to grapple with the idea of being more uh sensitive to these issues but not doing it very well and not really taking it by the horns really doing it in a half-hearted way um the flip side of that is an actually quite violent um crime story where uh on their first um day of being on assignment the protagonist and his partner stumble across a drug deal and his partner gets shot and goes into a coma for the rest of the episode the rest of the season um, and just to sort of, I don't know if this is a measure of Argentina, Argentina, or just the show, but the, the, the protagonist has his, um, his uh, partner's blood splattered all over his shirt as part of them interrupting this drug deal. His, his partner is shot and splatters yeah. blood all over his uniform. Three episodes later, the blood is still on the uniform. They can't even get him a new shirt. And I assume that's part of a joke. Okay. Um, so it swings between being ridiculous and funny to being incredibly violent. Uh, and it doesn't pull any punches about who it's like there's scenes where the gangsters sh- just pull out the gun and shoot people without, you know, who have, who've crossed them without any mercy or, or hesitation. Um, and you're like, Oh, okay. You know, it's sort of that real, really quick sort of turn into, into mm. a very, very violent scene from the really kind of silly comedy that's been, playing in that space of uh beforehand yeah. it's actually quite entertaining uh okay. it is interesting to see a different culture in it's a south american culture now trying to sort of wrestle with similar issues that maybe we dealt with in australia five ten years ago you know like the whole idea of you know accessibility and you know um mm sort of embracing people's differences obviously that's a journey this country is very much still on but i think this is this is argentina taking baby steps into that space and and this is the kind of show that's come out of the the uh the country trying to deal with that sort of thing yeah Uh, it's 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 in the browse category for me it's it's amusing it's good enough to keep me coming back okay Last thing that I want to talk about uh, this time is a much delayed burn, and that is The Witcher Blood Origin on Netflix. My goodness, this is... Um, is this a spin-off or is this a sequel series? It, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's um, supposed to be the uh, origins of how witches became a thing um and it's got the number one darling of the moment michelle yao in it and she is given nothing but very generic 
stereotypical, oh, this person comes from a blatantly Asian-inspired tribe, and it's we're going through the motions. It's something that there was um, an interesting article um, I saw on uh, Joe Blow, Donnie Yen. He was talking about his early career in Hollywood and how it was sort of like, oh, great, I'm getting work here. But it's, oh, it's so st- painfully stereotypical. Why am I... Why am I from Asia in America? And why does my character have to have stereotypical kind of like Asian collar and things like that? Why why would I have that? Why would I do that? And it's like, yeah, sometimes things just appropriation gets things so wrong sometimes. Um, but back to the show, it's a mess. It's it's a genuine mess. It's only four episodes, and I don't know how they messed it up so much. Well, to be fair, they just decided that they were going to ignore the books after season one of The Witcher. So it, like, I suppose it makes sense and follows on with their production values. And it's like, oh, we're losing Henry Cavill because we didn't follow the storyline. Oh, awkward. I mean, it's cheapest non-union equivalent. Get me the cheaper Hemsworth. The knockoff Hemsworth, that'll do. <laughs> um, it's bad. The production value is bad. The acting is bad. The writing is bad. The story is bad. It is four episodes that are an hour long, 48 minutes, 51 minutes, 42 minutes. They're all exactly an hour and three minutes, 48 minutes, 51 minutes, and 43 minutes too long. It's bad in every conceivable way. This is something that everyone involved wishes did not exist. Burn. That's fairly definitive. Well, I figured considering we had two, we've generally been falling outside of the three brackets. I figured it was fair to have one that was in a definitive burn category. This this has Um, definitely got burn notice on it. Uh, I, if we, if we, I'm not going to, it's an unofficial mentory here, but we've got one episode to go of The Last of Us and it's still sitting in the binge category. Like mm-hmm. next week, I will re- mm-hmm. I will finish the season then. Yes. Um, but yeah. my end last nomination is a, we're going to have a very soft binge for this one. That is Daisy mm-hmm. Jones and the Six. Now I've seen this, this advertised. Available, this is available on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. I only realized this was a thing because I had an article about it in, um, in The Guardian last week about mm. how the, this, this is about a band, a TV show, and mm. the, the fictional band in the show has recorded an album, which apparently is a bit of a banger. So um, when I saw it pop up on Prime yesterday, uh, I uh, thought, well, I will take a look at it. Mm. Following the rise of rock band Daisy Jones and the Six through the 70s LA music scene, on their quest for world one icon status. Mm. Um, and that doesn't sound particularly interesting to me. I, mm-hmm. I was born in the seventies, but I wasn't alive for much of it. And I don't remember it. Um, so music in the seventies, you know, um, but what grabbed me about this was the opening of the show. And okay. I guess the, 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 the premise or the framing of a show in a sense, the show is framed as, being filmed as a series of interviews in um, 1997, uh, where 
the band, the fictional band in the title, Daisy Jones and the Six, are talking about what happened, how their band came to break up in 1977 for the first time in 20 years. So okay. the story opens with, in 1977, they played a sold-out show to Soldier Field in Chicago. I don't know where the fuck that is. I assume it's a big stadium. Yep. Um, sort of a sold-out sold, uh, sold show. They had a number one Grammy-winning award album. They were one of the biggest bands in the world, and that was the last concert they ever played together. Mm. And in the subsequent 20 years, no one has talked about it. No one, none of the band, none of her inner circle, have ever explained or talked about why they went their separate ways. Mm-hmm. And so this series of interviews on for you know, television or whatever in 1997 is the first time they're ever talking about why and how things ended up going for their band. Now, like, that's an interesting framing device for the show. Mm-hmm. It's not just straight biopic. So in the mm-hmm. first episode, which is the only one I've watched so far, we meet them sort of they come from two separate places. We have Daisy Jones, um, played by Riley Keough, um, who is a familiar name to me. She was in Mad mm. Max Fury Road, amongst a few other things. Um, terminal list, that was good. Um, and she is a child of privilege, um, but has um, parents who don't really give a shit about her, despite her having access to every advantage through their wealth. She, we follow her exploring the seventy, the late sixties music scene in what can only be described as a bit of a boomer jerk off about how great music was in the sixties. You know, I yes, I agree, but could you fucking not? Um, <laughs> the other half of the story is the rest of the band for the six, um, yep. which is basically formed around two brothers, um, but, uh, played by uh, Will Harris and his granddaughter. And Josh, Eddie, uh, sorry, Josh Whitehouse. Um, sorry, not, not Josh. Um, anyway, I'll find the other character here in a minute. But anyway, Billy Dunn. The Dunn brothers. Like Sam Claflin. There we go. Sam Claflin, my bad. Billy and Graham Dunn. Uh, Eddie's one of the band members. And the brothers form a band in their garage in Pittsburgh. And mm-hmm. we sort of follow their journey as a band playing covers and starting to get gigs and stuff like that through the point where they meet their first manager played by Timmy the Oliphant, um, who encourages them to start to move to LA if they want to make it as a band. The final sort of part of the episode is about them just sort of be hinting at the pair, the Daisy and the band crossing paths in LA, but it doesn't quite happen just yet. Hmm. Uh, okay. By the end of the episode, Daisy has started to realize that despite she's sort of been hooking up with artists and writers, uh, and creative types throughout the film. She's starting to find that these people are taking advantage of her in the sense mm. that they take her ideas and turn them into songs or screenplays. And that starts, he starts to, uh, it's a great line towards the end of the episode. I guess it's a spoiler. Who cares? Um, <laughs> she says, I don't want to be amused to somebody. I want to be the somebody, mm. um, which I kind of thought was a cool way of putting it. It's it's entertaining. It's high production value because a lot of money's gone into this. Uh, the the fucking soundtrack budget must have been mind blowingly huge because it's 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 full of stuff you know, um, good music from that part of it, that time in history. And yeah, the cast are all attractive and they all look right. It, it, it looks like the seventies. <laughs> I had good enough time to say I'm going to come back and, and check out a couple more episodes when I have time. Okay. Fantastic. Well, there we go. 
That brings us to the end of the show, ladies and gentlemen. This has been episode 175 of the Armchair Producers. We talked about the chain movie of the week, Love Actually. We will be following on that with the talented Ryan Ackerson to <laughs> Scooby-Doo. <laughs> because why not? It's my, my choice and I made it. Uh, we talked about the 2001 cult classic Donnie Darko, as well as one of the uh, dark horses, shall we say, for the Oscar runs of To Leslie. And we had our binge browse burn where I talked about The Consultant, um, Blood Origins, um, uh, Daisy Jones and the Six, um, a very soft little mention for The Last of Us, and Balls. What was the other one? Community Squad. Community Squad. Thank you. Yes. Um, and that brings us to the end of the show. Don't forget you can like, um, share, and subscribe. It does very much help us out. You can be just like the King Richard in the chat over on Facebook. You can watch us live on facebook.com slash armchairproducers, twitch.tv slash the fried brain. Armchair Producers is the name of the show. You can find it on all good podcast services at Fried Brain, at Evil Trav on Twitter. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, good night. Good night.